So let us turn to the 26th Psalm, Psalm 26. If you're wondering where we are going, we plan to go through about Psalm 28 or 29, and then we'll be coming to Easter time. And then after Easter, uh, we will start a new sermon series and take a break from the Psalms. But we're in Psalm 26. If you don't have a Bible, it would give us great joy for us to give you one of the black Bibles that are on one of the chairs in front of you. And you can turn there and keep that book and use it. And I pray that it will be a blessing to you. Psalm 26. I began the service by saying, friends, we are at least a week closer to heaven. But I also want to say this, we are a week closer to judgment. Are you ready for judgment? Are you ready to have your thoughts, actions, motives exposed before the only righteous judge I want you to think this way this morning as you ponder and reflect. Are you prepared to stand naked and exposed before a holy God? 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that when the Lord comes, He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, our motives, and everything about us, then each person will receive his commendation, and I guess we could say, or condemnation from God. Or let me read one more passage about this warning. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of the marrow and discerning the thoughts and intents of our hearts and no creature, no human being that is hidden from it will be hidden from his sight, but we will be naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we will give an account." Psalm 26 is a psalm of David, a psalm that is, I guess you could label it part lament and part confidence in God and part a cry out for protection. In this psalm, David asked God to come and vindicate him and judge because David is prepared for that judgment. He welcomes God's judgment. This psalm says to us this morning, faith church, visitor, man or woman made in the image of God, be prepared, be prepared for God's judgment that most surely will come. And it's showed here by a person who is being afflicted in some way, probably by unjust enemies, and he appeals to God for judgment. Let's look at this with me. Let me read these verses, and you follow along as I go. David says, vindicate me, 
O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hand are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. There are some psalms when we study and we're going through these psalms where a sermon just jumps out at me and says, that's easy to preach. And there are some psalms that I go through and I, I wrestle through it and beat at it and struggle with it and go, God, what are you showing us in this text? What, what is the implications and what is the applications for us as 21st century American Christians And I pray that God would apply this psalm to our lives in a special way. God, would you do that for us? Hear the prayers of Roy and hear our prayers right now as we come. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the psalm. And I want you to see some of the divisions here, or at least as I see them. And then after we walk through and understand a little bit more of this psalm, I want to give you three applications or implications of this text for our lives that are gigantic. They are big. They are most important. And you want to listen to because your soul depends on these truths. So let's walk through this. If you have a bulletin when you came in, the back bulletin, the first top, the top side of that back page gives you kind of that outline and then my three points kind of will provide a table of contents as you go through this sermon. First of all, we see in the psalm in verse 1 an appeal of judgment. An appeal of judgment. See that in verse 1? Vindicate me, O Lord, he says. He just, vindicate me, O God, I need you. Vindicate me. Literally, the word there in the Hebrew which is what Paul, uh, which was David writing, is judge me, God. Would you judge me? Come, judge. Because he has been treated so badly, I wonder if you've been in that place, or you've been treated so unjustly and so unfairly that you want to just say, God, I'm ready for judgment because if both cases, if the cases are set out, You will vindicate me because they're treating me so unfair and I'm dealing with injustices and I need your relief. That's where David is. That's why in this psalm it is part lament. David is crying out to God for justice. It's like the psalm before us when David says to you, Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies who are right now trying to triumph over me, let not them triumph over me. 
And so we get an appeal for justice. And then what David does in the rest of the verse 1, so 1b through verse 8, is he makes in a case for his innocence of why he's ready or prepared to be judged. He gives that case. Look with me at verses 1, the second line of that. He says, for I have walked in my integrity. That word integrity doesn't mean sinlessness or complete purity and never sinning. We know David is a sinner. In fact, he says it in Psalm 25 over and over again. Pardon my guilt for I am, for I am, it is great. Lead a sinner like me in the way I should go. He is a sinner, yet he walks in integrity. That word has to do with completeness or even wholeheartedness. David is saying, God, you know that though I am imperfect, my heart is growing to be wholehearted to you. Think Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. And this is David's cry. And he says, God, you know that I have walked in integrity. And then the next line, I have trusted in you, Lord, without wavering. God, I have not buckled when it got hard. When it got difficult, I continued to trust in you. You are my refuge. And I remember what you have said. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his refuge. I've trusted in you. He goes on in verse 2. I am, he says basically, I'm open to scrutiny, God. But I also want you to purify me and test me. And so he says in verse 2, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. He goes on and he says, and maybe the most important phrase in this verse, I I think in this passage, is what you find in verse 3. So look there. If you're an underliner, verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. He says, God, vindicate me, judge me, because your love... Your steadfast love, your special, that is a special word, your love is before my eyes and I do not let it go. I cling to your, can I say, covenant love that you made toward me. So that's why you should, that's my case for my innocence. In verse, the second half of that verse, I walk in faithfulness. I walk in your truth, but it's all because of your faithfulness to me. If you're here and you're alive and you're a Christian and you're still a Christian, this morning you could raise your hands and say, great is your faithfulness, God. If you are celebrating your one-year birthday of being saved, born again, You'd have to say, God, thank you for one year of a special kind of faithfulness of keeping me and giving me life. And David says, I have walked in your faithfulness, God. And then he says in verse 4 and 5, and here's another reason why you should judge me rightly and vindicate me, is because I hate the right things. I avoid the right things. I do not sit with the men of falsehood, nor do I consult with, consort with 
hypocrites and I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. And what he is saying here is the company of scoffers and of the wicked are not where I feed my soul or find my company. He, he is saying, my so- I, I do not have an appetite for that anymore. I have an appetite and a love for something different. And he says it in the next verses, in verse 6 and 7, I love to worship you. I love to give my thanks to you. I love to declare your wondrous deeds. Look at verses 6 and 7. I wash my hands in innocence. As I go around your altar and worship you, I proclaim thanksgiving to you. I recall or tell all your wondrous deeds. And in verse 8, he says something I think so beautiful, and I pray will be growing evermore this heartbeat in our own lives as Christians. I love the habitation of your house. He says, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. He's, he's, we're going to see that next week in Psalm 27. Where he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. This is what I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Ultimately, he's saying, I love you so much. I want, to, I want to experience every bit of you. And part of that is when we gather together in the tabernacle, David would say, and we offer up sacrifices of thanksgiving to God, and we remember how God made a promise to us and loves us, we rejoice. And there is nothing greater than to experience your presence ministering and reminding us of your love and your care and knowing your promises. There's nothing like it. That's why I ask you, God, to vindicate me against my enemies. The last thing, to summarize all of these verses, David is just saying, God, vindicate me. Here's my case. My case is I love you. And I love right things. And because of loving right things, I hate the things you hate. You see, David's loves are ordered properly. One, you may have heard this phrase, we are, as a man thinketh, so is he. Have you ever heard that phrase? As a man thinketh, so is he. Well, as a person loves, so is he. We are what we love, what we really love. What is it that you really love? If we look at our time and if we look at how we spend our time and our money and how we, what we daydream about during the week, the minutes and hours when no one's looking, what will they see that you really love? You can't ultimately fake loving God, ultimately. And if you love God and His presence, it is because... And I'm going to see this in this passage. You're captured by his love to you. You see, I think verse 3 is foundational to all his making a case to God for him to vindicate him. He says, my eye, I do, you have changed me and I'm a different person and I love what you love and I have been innocent. I have been wholehearted to you and I trust you and I hate the, the association of evildoers and I love your presence and your people. But God, verse 3, 
my eyes stay on your steadfast love to me. It's everything. David in this verse, and we need to, as we see this, David is not a self-righteous person. He's, he is not bragging. He isn't saying that he's earned God's love. He isn't claim, he's claiming God's promises. He's not trusting in his works for salvation. His trust is in God and his faithfulness and his steadfast, merciful, gracious, saving, forgiving, correcting, purifying, never let go, loyal love that was to David. And that's what I think we're seeing when David appeals to God and makes a case, please vindicate me. Now you move to verses 9 through 11. So look at these verses as we get to the end of this. Third section is he makes an appeal then to God for deliverance. He says, God, please deliver me. Do not sweep, verse 9, do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. He knows justice is coming. He knows judgment from God is going to come and going to sweep men away into destruction. He says, God, do not sweep my soul with them. And in verse 11, he says, but as for me, I walk in my integrity. Redeem me. Having purchased me and forgiven me, Take me out and do not let me be swept away. Instead, redeem me and be gracious to me. He makes an appeal to God for deliverance. And lastly, verse 12, there's a cry of assurance. He says, my foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. And you see it begin at the beginning and the end. If you were to just stare at Psalm 26 for a while and just read it over and over again, you'd see some things at the beginning, at the end. We call that inclusio. The authors usually did this in order to kind of frame and bookmark things to make you see something very important. He begins and ends and says, it's, I'm in, I live in integrity, a wholeheartedness. He also says at the beginning about how he walks, trusts God without wavering. That has to do with the idea, my foot isn't slipping. It isn't wobbling. And at the end, he says, I am walking on level ground. I'm not slipping. Because my refuge is in the Lord. And in the great assembly, I will worship. I will bless the Lord. So friends, in this passage, David is not a sinless man. It sounds like it, just because he is talking about his righteousness. He's not justified by his works and said, so God, justify me because I'm good. Even though there is a lot of good in David in this psalm. David is right before God and asks for justice based on, verse 3, God's covenantal love that provided sacrifice for the David's forgiveness. This love provided a love that transformed David's heart and renewed David to be growing in a greater devotion and a trust to his God. This love from God loved David so that David would love and fear God with a devotion that cannot be explained by anything other than a work of God done in his heart. You see, David's eyes, verse 3, David's eyes are on God's steadfast love. So David walks in God's faithfulness. Friends, 
brothers and sisters in Christ, faith, church, we are called to keep our eyes on God's steadfast love. That steadfast love does not just cause us to wipe our brow and say, thank goodness I'm not going to hell. That steadfast love does a work on us. It is efficacious. It's working or powerful love that actually transforms us from the inside out so that we become actually unrecognizable than we were from before, where we actually become a different man or woman, young person. We become a person that is not according to their nature because his love has shown in our hearts and starts to change us from the inside out. And what we find, I believe wholeheartedly, David's change of life, his appeal to God, please deliver me because these things are true in my life is because his eyes continually look on God's steadfast love. With that, I want to give you three applications or what I, I guess I'd say this way, here's three truths that are implied in this text in these verses. I'm going to give them to you. They're in your notes. Number one, God is going to judge someday. Just as we find in this story, David, in this psalm, David appealing to God and saying, God, my enemies are so bad. Please bring me justice. Vindicate me. Judge me. That word vindicate means judge. It should remind all of us as we're sitting here on a March 6, 2022, God is going to judge someday. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed unto man once to die, and then will come a judgment. Or Romans 2 says that there is coming a day the day of wrath when God's righteousness, his righteous judgment will be revealed, displayed, and he will render to each of us according to our work. And later in Romans, when Paul warns us to, not, to be very careful how we judge one another, he says these words that we should not ignore. We will all Stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself, of himself, to God. That's why Paul can write to young Timothy and says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing. He is going to judge the living dead. That's where we get in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come and judge the living and the dead. I believe that passages like this and passages all over the Bible, if we are faithful to it, will say to you and to me, young Christian, old Christian, human being, whether you call yourself a Christian, live in light of the judgment of God. Live in light of it. What I mean by that, there, imagine God's judgment's there and it shines a light. Let the days of your life be lit, directed by there's a day coming. 
and I will stand and give an account to him. I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. The righteous will be prepared for the judgment. The wicked will not be ready. Psalm 1 really sets the entire psalms up when he says at the end of Psalm, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And if that's the way it works, if that's truth and we believe it, you and I sure better want to know, am I with the righteous? And I'm not going to be with the wicked. And all of us might feel this tension, but I know I'm not righteous far too often. And far too often my heart is too much like the wicked. How can I ever know? I'm going to get there in a minute here, but Matthew 20, speaking of the judgment of God, Jesus writes or told his disciples this. He said, the Son of Man, that's himself, is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he will repay each according to what he has done. Or in Matthew 13, he says, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them in a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal judgment. But then he says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. Only two categories that Jesus gives us, lawbreakers and the righteous. No middle category for nice, nominal, safe Christianity. Friends, the Lord is going to judge someday. He is going to judge you. I am warning you. I will give an account for warning you. He's going to judge me. He is going to judge all the presidents and governors and judges and generals and politicians and policemen and bosses, teachers and insurance agents and sheriffs and billionaires and rich and poor, middle class. He's going to judge all Americans, Ukrainians, Russians, Cameroonians, Chinese, and every nation and people of the world, every language and every color. He'll know them all, and he'll know the thoughts and intents of their heart. No sin will go unpunished. And no, not one good deed, not one thing endured for the sake of Christ will go unrewarded. When I say no sin will go unpunished, either we will pay for it and be punished eternally, or it'll be applied to the account of what Jesus purchased on the cross for sinners redeemed by his blood. But there, there is no other option. Are you ready for that judgment someday? Are you prepared and are, and are you living in light of that reality? And I will say to you that living in light of that reality doesn't mean living scared and nervous every moment. 
It is like David learning to love the Lord your God with all your heart and learning to trust him without wavering as you gaze upon his great love. So the first, if the first truth is God is going to judge someday, the second thing I want you to see is no one, no one is prepared for that judgment apart from God's covenantal love. No one is prepared for the judgment that we are going to face apart from God's covenant love. David isn't prepared for God to judge him apart from the truth that God has set his steadfast love on him. And David's looking at that steadfast love, verse 3, and he doesn't stop looking at that love. The grounds of David's preparedness for judgment of God is the same grounds that will be for each and one of us. It will not be that we are innocent. And God will say, you passed the test and had more good works than bad works. Enter into the joy of my salvation. It will be always and fully God's steadfast love that has been fixed upon and established in our lives. Th- that word in verse 3, my eyes have been on your steadfast love, steadfast love. I mean, it's going to say it over and again. There's probably two Hebrew words for you to learn. You don't need to learn Hebrew to learn understand the word of God. It might help, but, right, Dan? But it's not necessary. But there are two words that I do want you to know over the years. The word Yahweh, which is the word that's translated L-O-R-D, all capitals, whenever you see in the Old Testament, that is the covenant name of God. It is a special name. It is, it, is, it is not just a title. It is a personal name that he declares, and it means I am who I am, and I am forever, and I will be for my people. And there's another word. It's, it's called hased. H-E-S-E-D is how you might translate it. Or, or write it in English. It is the word for that we have here, steadfast love. And every time this word is used of God towards us, like it is here, God's love towards us, it means his covenanting love to his people. And I mean, I just I say this over and over again. I made a covenant with, with my wife. We pledge to each other. We are to be committed forever to each other until death do us part. God made a covenant love towards his people, and he loves us to the end. And that word is translated in many ways. It's sometimes translated kindness, faithfulness, mercy, goodness, loyalty, steadfast love. It's his loyal love. It's the love, this is the word that God declared when he said, you want to know my name, Moses, and you want to see my glory? Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he said, here's my name, here is my steadfast love. He passed before Moses and he said, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. God made this covenant with first Abraham and then to all his descendants. He promised that he would love and forgive them. He promised them mercy and grace. He promised that he would forgive their sins and he would yet be just and not clear the guilty. 
And what he did was he provided a substitute, atonement for those in his covenant. Blood was shed by millions of animals through the years and the centuries to cover or divert the wrath of a holy God covering our sins for a season on really guilty people who are still in the covenant. People that looked to God and said, you made a promise to me like David, and you covered me with your covenantal love by providing a sacrifice. His covenant love provided all of this. This covenant is greater than any marriage covenant, and it's promised, it promises a loyalty to his people. You see, all that ancient bloodshed that took place in the Old Testament on altars, of bulls and goats, sheep. All that ancient bloodshed in the tabernacle or in the temple was pointing to the true sacrifice and bloodshed of the one lamb, the one true high priest, Jesus Christ. I said that this precious word that we need to get a hold of and love and thank God for because it just it, it says so much about God's love, that Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, it's better spelled J-E-S-U-S. It is spelled Jesus Christ. It is He is God's steadfast love to us who has come and redeemed us. And so as we come to this truth, there is no one prepared to stand before judgment apart from God's covenantal love. David is not trusting his integrity for God to judge him rightly. He is appealing with God his integrity as a fruit that something has happened, but his eyes are fixed on God's steadfast love, and that must be for us all today. And I conclude with the third and final point, and that's this, an implication. Covenant love that I'm just talking about, God's covenant love offered to you, produces fruit. It changes people. God's way too good than just to save us and leave us a mess. Oh, we're still a mess, but he doesn't leave us a mess. He, over t- he puts his spirit in us, and his love is in us, and he starts to change us. And David can speak with integrity, a wholehearted devotion to God, not because, praise you, David, but praise God, God had changed David's heart. David talks about his abhorrence of the company of the wicked and his love for the assembly of God's people, for the presence of God's glory. He does this, and he does not appeal as a means of his salvation. David loves the right things and hates the right things. They're in their proper place. And all of that was an evidence of God's love changing David. You see, David, because of God's steadfast love, had changed appetites where he loved God. If you love God truly, like for no other motive than you love him, you want to please him. You can't take one bit of credit for that. You're not wired to love God that way. You're, lo- you're wired to love everything else. You're, lo- you're wired to love God as a means of loving other things. I want to love God so God will give me what I want. But for me to be able to love God for God's sake, because I just he made me for his glory, 
That's a miracle done in the heart. That's God's steadfast love coming in and changing us and making us what we were meant to be. And I think that when David declares his innocence in these verses and appeals to God, the reality is he's saying, my eyes are fixed on your steadfast love, but it produced a fruit. I do hate the company of evildoers. I I don't find my, my energy there. I find it in the glory of God and his people and worship to you. I wonder about our appetites. Do we love the things God wants us to love? Covenant love that God comes and saves us, it produces a fruit in every one of us. It gives us new loves and new desires. If you are part of God's covenant through Jesus Christ, we call that being saved, born again, made new, received Christ, you have a new desire for God. And if you don't have a desire for God, you're not saved. He can save you today. When he saves you and he, co- he covenants you with his love, you will begin to worship him and you will desire to worship him. You will desire the assembly, the gathering of God's people. Not all at once. There's still old desires there, but he's going to start to change that. You will desire to come before him and offer thanks and you'll have thanks in your heart because he has shed his love in your heart. And you will praise his wondrous deeds. And you'll do this not to get his favor because you already have his favor. You'll do it because you have his favor. Friends, be prepared for the judgment day. And so to do so, I I declare the gospel and I invite you to God's covenant love this morning. That is my privilege and my job to do every week to invite people to enter into God's covenant love. And so here it is. The most holy and the most gracious and the most beauty, beautiful and the most worthy being in the universe is your maker. And he is God. He made you to know and enjoy him forever. And this knowing and enjoying includes an absolute love and devotion to him in everything. Yet, we are sinners. And Genesis 3 tells us that we all fell with our first parents, Adam, in rebellion and not believing God and depending on ourselves And by our nature now, we are absolutely contrary to this love and devotion. Yet this holy God who needs to punish sin if he's going to stay holy, he made a way to show grace and mercy. He opens wide his arms to forgive sinners and show them mercy. He extends an invitation and he changes hearts for rebels to be pardoned and made into children of God who receive his complete and never-ending allegiance. He sent his son, Jesus, to become a man, to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death. He is your sacrifice if you receive him. 
His blood can pay for your sins and bring you into God's family, His covenantal love. If you will freely receive the gift by repenting of your sins and receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And brothers and sisters, those who have already received that covenant love, who are already in the covenant of his grace, who have already been purchased by his blood. We symbolize it every three weeks when we do communion. Rest in his covenant love. Not be lazy in his covenant love, but rest in it. Cast your eyes daily and hourly to the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus. Do that when you have to forgive and when you have to ask for forgiveness. Do that when you struggle with obeying this week, when you struggle with the hard work that's in front of you that you don't want to do but you know you need to do. Look to his steadfast love to love your spouse and your children or your parents or your coworker or your neighbor or your fellow church person in this church. His steadfast love is our life. This love doesn't save you. Your love that then will respond and love others won't save you. You're saved because he does love you already. And he'll start to write and work his love within you. So I want to end with this passage. The love, the steadfast love of God, his covenant love to us, prepares you for judgment. I live in light of judgment. Be ready. Be ready to welcome God to judge you. His love prepares you for judgment by changing you little by little into his own image. 1 John 4 says it so well in the way it summarizes these thoughts. In verse 16, he says, So we have come to know and to believe that the love, the love that God has for us, he, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. I want confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so we are in the world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And may we be transformed by that, and may it never grow old, or may it be the, the newest thing in your life today by receiving it. Worship team, would you come and let's... Let's pray. Oh God, we have nothing if we don't have your steadfast love. God, we want to be loving people to our neighbors and to each other and to our, our families, to the nations. And if we do want that, it will come because we are growing to love you. Oh God, God, show us your love.
I pray that we'd forgive this week because we experience your love. We would confess our sins this week to when we sin against someone because we're so secure in your love. I pray that you would help us to be generous to one another because of your love. I pray that we'd take risks that you want us to take because of your love. I pray that we would hate sin because of your love. But in hating sin, we would love people that are in so desperate need of you because of your love. I pray that we'd love and parent our children because of your love. And children would love and honor their parents and obey them because of your love. I pray that you'd make us a different people because of your love. Oh God, make us ready for your judgment. Make us urgent for, your, for this preparation. Help us to not mess around, play around in life. Oh God, help us to be the joyful people consumed by your love, sharing this message with others. In Jesus' name, amen.